Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Sorry, I'm flossing, so... Uh, yeah. <laughs> we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings upon the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay, uh, as mentioned last time, uh, uh, I want to spend uh, quite a bit of time on the first, like the preface and such on, on the text. And going through the material, I thought the best approach would literally be to, to read through big chunks of this opening section together and then I break and interrupt to, to provide uh, other notes. And, and essentially, most of the book is speaking about the challenges of Islam and Islamic law in our era, which uh, I believe you all find to be very, very beneficial. But I still wanna make sure we have a, a strong enough uh, foundation with which to, to explore that. And, and so what I'm going to do is share my screen because uh, I'm assuming you all don't have the book. Uh, I see Hani right there, mashallah, very good student, has the book. Uh, I don't know about the, the, the other three, especially you say that I don't want you to be driving and reading. Wait, um, were we supposed to buy the book? Well, I didn't say you had to buy the book. No, so you're, you're good. All right, so, uh, uh, so I'm, gonna sh I'm gonna be flipping between sharing the screen between the book as well as my whiteboard. Uh, but first let's start out with the, the the, the book itself. Um, all right, can you all, can, well, I guess the only person I can see is Hani. Um, um, can you nod or let me know that you can see the book on my screen? Okay, okay, very good. I'm sorry, is it Hani or Hani? Yeah, it's, ha it's, it's Um Hani, so, but I go by Hani in yeah. Urdu, Um Hani, yeah. Okay, okay, very good, yeah. Totally okay, either way. All right. And then Adil introduces himself as Adil. Okay, so uh, so who would like to read? Uh, Hani or Adil? Uh, would either of you like to start us off and read? And then I'm, I'm going to intro. All right, Hani, would you like to read for us? I don't think I'm going to be recording this. <laughs> okay, this was a this was a daunting book to write. Sorry, author's note, this was a daunting book to write, not only because it is inspired by a sense of urgency and perhaps a foreboding uh, seriousness, but more so because it is intended to be a painful personal book. I wrote this book as a Muslim who is also an academic scholar and not as an academic scholar who happens to be Muslim. And in so doing, I abandoned any pretend, pretense of speaking from the proverbial academic tower where I could contently analyze the world from a safe distance behind the veneer of objectivity. Okay, uh, I'm gonna stop right there. And there's two huge points I'd like us to focus on. And now I'm gonna switch over to our whiteboard. So please let me know, so, know you can see the whiteboard now. That's, okay, good. All right. <clears throat> and okay. So the first big point is this issue of being Muslim versus an academic. And more specifically, I want to contrast between the madrasa and the academy. Okay. So I can study Islam in the madrasa, even though the word madrasa literally means school, but in this context, I mean the Islamic, traditional Islamic seminary. So I can study Islam in the madrasa and I can study Islam in the academy. 
I can literally study the same two books, the same books in both places, yet the approach is 100% different. Okay. And, and by the way, feel free, uh, all of you, to, to interrupt either with, uh, with um, voice or chat. Uh, and so when we're looking from the perspective of the madrasa, <clears throat> the question it is asking is, what does Allah want from me? So that, so that is the central question that drives uh, Islamic study. So if you think last week, we looked at the Islamic sciences, and we spoke of the Islamic sciences as this articulation of Allah's Rahmah. If I'm going to, through the madrasa to become an alim, alima, sheikh, etc., cetera, uh, I'm learning, I'm answering this question, what does Allah want? Okay. Uh, any thoughts? Uh, what would you guess is the central question that the academy is trying to answer? And this is whether we're talking about the study of Islam, the study of, of planet Earth, uh, economics. What do you think? If you could sum it up in one question. How do I do what Allah wants? Okay, I'm saying in the academy. So like if you're at Loyola University or uh, University of Chicago, UIC, you know, Harvard, University of Houston, wherever the case may be, what would you say is the central question that the academy is asking? How can I do good? I don't think that's a thing of all the classes you're taking. I don't think they're teaching you how to do good. Well, I'm lost. <laughs> they're answering the question, how does the world work? What is what is the truth? Would that be a question that? So I would suggest <clears throat> that would be one question within a philosophy department. <laughs> okay. And that's not even a question that comes up in the theology department. Right? Okay. Although we could say that both of these are variations of that question. That uh, what, what does Allah want? Well, Allah Ta'ala wants me to be, be truthful and to seek the truth and to obey the truth. And when we're saying, how does the world work? We're saying this is, eff uh, effectively, this is the truth. And so this first column we talked about last week when we got into the Islamic sciences. And so the answer is coming from the Prophet in the Quran in Sunni Islam, it's coming from the Sahaba. In Shia Islam, it's coming from the Imams. And again, what are the companions and the Imams doing? They are providing us the primary lens through which to understand the Prophet and the Quran. Okay. And, and so a lot of times we say the difference between Sunni and Shia is who should have been the Khalifa after the death of the Prophet. That's, that's a secondary issue. And it's an almost irrelevant issue because it was not an issue at the time of the prophet peace. So there's no such thing as a Sunni or Shia at that time. It's an issue that gets raised later on and then gets backwards projected on that time. But the real uh, difference, the real fundamental difference in practice and in life is what do I rely upon to learn about the prophet and the Quran? Peace be upon, uh, peace be upon the prophet. Okay. And then... <clears throat> And then this leads to the construction of the Islamic sciences.
and I'm intentionally drawing them as though they converge because they do. Uh, that the figures that are the imams in in uh, Sunni in Shia tradition are revered people in Shia in Sunni tradition, right? So Imam uh, Ali obviously is a companion. Imam Hassan, Imam Hussein, they're they're also regarded as companions in the family of the Prophet peace be upon him. Jafar al-Sadiq, who's one of like the first real big scholarly imam, is also considered to be a big scholar a scholar in in Sunni tradition, right? So it isn't like these are two different universes they are two different consciences consciences uh today right the experience of being a sunni versus the experience of being a shia in america for example uh, um, there are some fundamental differences but in terms of the history of scholarship they, they converge everyone's reading everybody else's books okay but in terms of of uh, uh the academic side of thing uh, the academic side of the question the primary lens through which this is all understood is what we in this side call science. So when we're saying Islamic sciences in the mother said the term we use is ulum, which is literally knowledge world, the world of knowledge. And so the common word in English is science. And so here we're talking about science. Uh, if I were to ask you to sum up what is science, whether we're talking about chemistry, physics, uh, biology, et cetera, et cetera. How would, you, how would you explain that question? What is it that makes science science? Or what does science claim about how the world works? Blank stares, just like undergrads at eight o'clock in the morning. Okay, so <clears throat> science is effectively saying that the world works in patterns. So the Vard operates in patterns. Okay. And so physics is literally the study of patterns and applying mathematical formulas, algebra at the very least, to identify and explain and predict patterns. Chemistry is the same thing. Biology is the same thing. Okay. Uh, economics is the same thing. So even so, we often speak of of the the core sciences, and then we have the human sciences, and then we have everything else that doesn't fit the first two. Okay, so the core sciences would literally be chemistry, physics, biology. Okay. And, and then the human sciences would be sociology, anthropology, economics, psychology. Uh, University of Chicago will include history, although people debate whether or not history is actually a science. And then everything else is, is it would be that which would, does not work in patterns. So literature. You can make a science in the study of literature by saying, all right, you know, here's how all stories operate, but literature itself is not working operating as a science philosophy is not operating as as a science and so so this is uh the essence of how the academy operates it's trying to figure out how does the world work and then these different specific sciences these different departments 
are different methods of inquiry. Okay. And so now think about how different uh, the approach to Islam would be. If I'm in the madrasa, my focus is going to be on those books that will help me answer that fundamental question. And so what's especially important on the left side is the curriculum. And the curriculum, if I'm in a madrasa in 2020, uh, there is this set curriculum uh, of give or take four years just for a basic alim degree that you're going to read this book, uh, which is from the 900s. You're going to read this book, which is from the 700s. You're going to read this book, which is from the 1200s. As though all of those were formed together to give you this answer to this question. Okay. Now, so think of this curriculum as a curated list of readings. And so the strength of it is that these are books that have been read and read and read. The weakness of it is whatever the weakness of the curriculum is. And so what are some of our stereotypes? And you can be totally frank and blunt. What are stereotypes we have in our society? I'm talking about Chicagoland, America, about, about traditionally trained Islamic scholars, anything positive or negative. Understand today's generation, or they mm -hmm. uh, modernize themselves, to, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, two big points you made right there. One is is essentially that this word "modernize," which is what we're going to talk about in just a second, um, that uh, they're essentially what you're saying is that they live or they're trained for a world that does not exist anymore, right? And that's the macro issue, and then the micro issue which means that they're not relevant for a contemporary person's problems. Okay. I mean, I think that's exactly the stereotype we have of, of Islamic scholars, that they don't live in the world I live in, you know, and they don't know the, the, the issues that I face. They don't have the skill set to address the issues that I face. That is the stereotype of people in our community that tend to be more educated, though. Okay. The stereotype of the people, so, so this is the stereotype of people who are middle class, upper middle class, have uh, a degree, if not multiple degrees. That is the stereotype that they have towards the people of the madrasa. The people who are at the lower end of the spectrum is often the opposite, right? That they have, they're the people with the real answers. So. Now, and that's, that's more related to the second point that, um, uh, that Khalil al makes. So you understand the difference that these are two different worlds. And so now when I'm in the academy, another point that's built in here is that if I'm studying Islam, I'm studying Islam not just through the lens of the question, how does this world work? Meaning how does this thing that we call Islam work? I'm also going to be using specific fields of inquiry. So I might look at Islam through a sociological lens to see how does it work? How do Muslims organize? What is the function of a mosque? How does the, how does the mosque structure work? You know, how does gender play out in terms of the mosque structure? I might look at it through an anthropological lens if I say, all right, here's how they do things in Chicago versus how they do, thing, do things in New York versus Houston versus Dallas versus LA. Or I might be looking through a lens of a specific ideological outlook. So I might be looking at it through the lens of power and privilege and say that, okay, in terms of the, the perspective of power and privilege, 
uh, it's definitely patriarchal. It's a diff different uh, uh, Islam in Chicago is definitely a patriarchal structure uh, where women do not seem to have a voice, right? And then within pa uh, the patriarchal outlook or the power and privilege outlook, I might look through a feminist lens, you know, from the perspective that all right, that that women should have you know complete empowerment just as men do. But the key point that I'm making is that. <clears throat> a point we made last time is that in terms of the study of text through the madrasa, our default is going to be something like grammar. Okay. Our default in the academy is going to be the method of whatever my training is going to be. That's going to provide me with my lens. Okay. And usually it's, uh, it's this, through the lens of history, more and more so we're looking through the lens of, like I said, these other, these other outlooks, um, whether it's through uh, a lot of writing is done through a feminist lens. A lot of writing is done through a progressive liberal lens, things like that. Okay. And so they are both studying Islam, but they're both giving a completely different picture of what Islam is. Okay. And this difference is increasingly the difference. It's, it's the, uh, the biggest fragmentation that is forming in terms of Islam in America. And so I made the analogy last time in terms of, of Judaism that you have Orthodox Jews and you have Reformed Jews. The equivalent here would be the Orthodox Jews would be the products of the Madrasa and the Reformed Jews would be the product of the Academy. Okay. And what are the Reformed Jews saying? They're saying you Orthodox people do not live in this world. Okay. The Judaism that you're practicing is irrelevant for us. It is not addressing our needs. And then the Orthodox are looking at the reform and what are they saying to them? They're saying you guys have completely watered down Judaism to the point that it's not Judaism anymore. You literally removed everything except to feel Jewish and maybe a few things like keeping kosher and such. Now here's a question for, for any of you. What percentage of Jews in America are Orthodox? What percentage are reform? What do you think? And I'll even give you a bit more history. Reform Judaism starts appearing in the 1800s and it's growing, and then the Holocaust happens, and they lose a lot of their legitimacy because they had no way to respond to the Holocaust. And then they've been growing uh, quite a bit um, in the last few decades. Yeah, Osei is correct. 80% of Judaism in America, 80% of Jews in America are Reformed Jews. And so what are we saying? That their focus is on the experience of being Jewish. And more often, you, the, the, the breakdown would be that of the academy. So I'm suggesting that this is exactly what I'm showing you on the board is the future of Islam in America. You would say that was a brilliant guess. Um, this is literally the future of Islam in America right on the screen. So, that the academic side is going to increase and increase. And I'll give you one simple example of it. I'll give you a couple. One is how do you prove something? Okay, in the madrasa, if I'm looking for an answer to a legal question, we said last time, and we'll talk about this a little bit more over the course of these classes, like there's a Hanafi system of interpretation. So you come with the question, and then you go through the Hanafi method of interpretation to come up with an answer or a set of answers. There's a Maliki system of interpretation, so forth and so on. Okay. But in the academy, how do I find an answer? Uh, it's what all of us have been taught in junior high school which is what? That you have a thesis 
and then you find your proofs to support your thesis, your arguments to support your thesis, and you find the arguments against and you respond to those and you have your conclusion. That's how the academy works, whether we're talking about junior high school or whether you're talking about, about something at a postgraduate level. Okay. And so if you're someone who's grown up in America, educated in America, you're gonna understand those proofs. You're not gonna understand the Hanafi method of interpretation. Although I'll say having witnessed both, the Hanafi method of interpretation is far more sophisticated, but uh, it takes training to understand how it works. Okay. And so that's one reason why the academy side is going to grow. The other reason is that there are some real world situations that the madrasa side is failing to answer. So for example, uh, what would you guess is the biggest issue in terms of gender in the Muslim community? So in the universe of gender, what would you say is the biggest issue uh, for Muslims? Right now, 2020 in Islam in America. The mixing of genders? Bigger than that. And as soon as I say it, you'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. It's, can a Muslim woman marry a non-Muslim man? Okay. Uh, see, notice the people nodding. I'm sure the people who are not on screen, they might be nodding as well. Okay. <clears throat> and, and so the madrasa uh, uh, answer, the madrasa default answer, we're not going to get into that discussion right now, although you're going to want to, is that, all right, as an exception, Muslim men are allowed to marry women of the book, okay, which is essentially Jews and Christians, okay, as an exception, and there's also some restrictions there. Okay, but the reverse is not allowed. Okay. Now, fast forward from you know, the year 600 such and such to now, uh, one of the big marriage crises we have in our society is that we have a whole bunch of really good women who are struggling to find good men. Adel's like, okay, that's promising for me as soon as I get my degree, inshallah. So, but the point is that that is the big issue of gender in our society, of, of in terms of the Muslim community, above everything else. So, and so that alone, I'm saying, is going to uh, increase the number of people that are going to go to this so-called reform Islam side. I mean, it's probably just going to be called progressive Islam. But that's uh, that's uh, that's going to be the biggest fuel for the growth of that, yeah. and that I'm suggesting is a failure on two parts: it's a failure on the madrasa side, and it's a failure on the community, which we'll talk about later on. Okay, so now <clears throat> the next point, uh, which is related to this word modernity, because okay, this is also very relevant. So we have. Pre-modern, the pre-modern world, the modern world, and then we have the post-modern world. So the modern world, anyone want to guess when it more or less begins? Someone give me a, a year-ish. Throw anything out there. Late. Just kidding. Uh, 19... oh, yeah. uh, say it again. I didn't hear what you said. 1990. 
Okay, okay. So give or take around 1700s. First, not even close, but that's okay. Okay, so first, uh, first in, inklings of the mo of the modern world would be in the 1500s, but then it really starts growing in the 1700s, along with European imperialism. And and then it goes give or take up to about 1945. Uh, in terms of the West, in particular, what's 1945? What's significant about that about that uh, year? End of World War Two. Exactly. The end of World War II. So in the modern world, actually, no, we'll go here. Uh, in the pre-modern world, at the center of society, at least officially, is God. It doesn't mean people are all religious, but God is at the center of society to the point that the most elaborate building will be in the center of society, and it'll be a temple of some sort, church, masjid, etc. And there was very much focus on the soul, the plight of your soul, as well as a focus on the hereafter. So all these Christian missionary movements, their focus was to save your soul, right? To get you to convert. The modern world comes along <clears throat> and it replaces God, removes God from the center and puts man there. And by man, I'm not saying human. I'm saying male, you know, M-A-L-E, not male man. But so the man becomes the center of the world. And we shift from the soul to the body. And the hereafter becomes almost completely irrelevant. Meaning people are still obviously religious in this 200 year time frame, but secularization pushes religion out of the picture. And so a way to think about this evolution, <clears throat> uh, I'm gonna add, okay, we'll put some blue. So here it's like we're saying religion is a giant force and then religion starts getting replaced by philosophy in Europe. But it's going hand in hand with European imperialism. And then philosophy gets replaced by science. Meaning what's taking place? Philosophy is saying we can figure out how to live a better life than what religion can tell us. Okay. So this is Immanuel Kant. This is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. This is this is um, who's the guy with empirical philosophy? Um, the guy who Thomas Jefferson plagiarizes for the Declaration of Independence. Um, John Locke. Yeah. And and so so they come along and they say philosophy is a better tool to live a better life, okay. a stronger tool, which is also saying we don't have the, the strictures of religion. But then that gets overtaken by science to live a better life. And so people literally felt that science is going to have the answer to absolutely everything. Yeah. But then we go through World War I, where you have upwards of 20 million civilian casualties. And then World War II, where there's upwards of 60 million civilian casualties. I mean, even now, nearly a century later, those numbers are, are insane 
um, to try to even comprehend in one war. Although you might be fair to say we're in World War III right now anyway. And so, so post-modernity is arguing that science uh, gives us facts. So, but not values. And so in one aspect, we're seeing a resurgence of religion providing values. Now, what else is taking place is we have throughout, as part of the shift away from religious themes, God, soul, and the hereafter to man, is that we have this rise of what we call the secular outlook or secular institutions. Good. So secularism. What does the word secular itself mean? Anybody know? It literally just means dunya. It means the world. And so in Europe in particular, things like charity, charitable institutions, they were operated by the church. And the church would legitimize a head of state. The Pope would legitimize the head of state. Okay. And then with secularism, the argument is we don't, we can bypass, you know, something clunky like the church. We can figure this out for ourselves and do it much more efficiently. Okay. And so what we're also seeing is a pushback against secularism. So, uh, and so this is a pushback of secularism, but it's also a pushback, let's say against secularism, but it's also a pushback against Western imperialism. It depends on where we are in the world. And so what this is giving is the rise of religious nationalism. As opposed to traditional religion. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. So, so traditional religion would be, for example, in Islam, would be that you have the scholar of Islamic law that's answering your questions, and then you become part of a Sufi tariqa for your day-to-day -day living and, and spiritual needs and such. Okay? But what religion has failed to do related to what we discussed in the previous uh, uh, screen is that these authorities, these thinkers have failed to provide answers for our era. Okay. And, and so there are people who cling to them believing that they have answers. So think about it this way. You'll have a masjid, let's say for example, a Desi masjid uh, where they'll hire a hafiz this has changed a little bit, but it's still more or less the same thing, who phonetically has memorized the Quran. And then families are going to that person for all their personal family problems. Even though this kid 
the only training this kid has is phonetically memorize the Quran. Nothing related to therapy. Okay. And then you have some people that have a little bit more education who say, okay, I'm not going to go to that kid. That kid doesn't know anything. I'm going to go to the alim because the alim is trained in Islam. But the primary training of the alim is in these methods of Islamic law. That's not going to help you with conflict resolution in the household. That's not going to provide you with therapy. Okay. And then to take it even further, someone's going to say, no, that person can't help me because that's not what their training is. I'm going to go to an Islamic therapist. Okay. But the Islamic therapist is basically someone who's trained in a secular therapy program, but then they apply ayahs and hadith to that. So the actual school itself is, is one that is coming from the academy, but then you just fill it up with Islamic language and you feel like it's Islamic therapy. So what am I saying? These are different layers of fundamentally not answering these, these, these questions. And again, to be fair, the place we're at right now is now we have therapists and psychologists and stuff that are trying to figure out an integrated Islamic therapy. Like the people at Khalil Center, this is literally what they're trying to do. You know. So I was saying, quick question, have they failed to address questions of the modern era or people just don't like the answers to these questions that they provided? So the answer to, is yes to both of them, but me speaking from my vantage point, uh, the first issue is the failure, right? I'm saying they do not, I'm saying as someone trained in Madrasa, trained in the academy, that they do not have answers for our era. Right. Um, and, and this includes our celebrity preachers too. You know, list all of the top 10 most popular celebrity preachers, and I'll give you 10 people, that whole list of people who by and large don't have answers to your needs. And I know almost all of them personally. This is not a criticism of them, I'm saying the re, what we're turning to them for, they're not equipped to give us, as opposed to you know, your, your local therapist or something like that. Yeah. And this even gets into, like if we really get to like a metaphysical level, this is what Iqbal's book is about uh, from 100 years ago, Reconstruction of Religious Thought and Islam. Is he's, he's talking about the era of post-science in, in, in that book. And there's literally been, you know, only a couple even responses to that book. One is by Fazal Rahman and such. Okay, so what I'm saying is that traditional religion is still present. It's still alive and kicking. But what is actually growing is religious nationalism. And so this is the right-wing evangelicals that are supporting Trump today. That didn't start with Trump. Trump gets voted out of office. Those guys are still present. This goes back at least to the early 1990s when the Christian coalition was formed. And it's a pushback against secularism. In the subcontinent, it's multiple movements. Again, pushing back against, against secularism and, and European imperialism. So Jamaat Islami is one example. So one of my main teachers is Isra Ahmad, who is a student of Maududi, who's the founder of Jamaat Islami, right? I mean, I'm speaking as, as literally an insider in these things. And so that was a pushback. And I also suggested last time that the Sufis shifted from being the social activist to focusing on personal piety, leaving this void, which also gave birth, uh, which was tried to be filled by the Muslim Brotherhood and such. And this is the BJP in India. And so, so the part that everybody forgets about the BJP is that they have a militant wing, the RSS. And the RSS, those are the people who killed Gandhi back in 1944. Okay. 
And so that is what is growing, this, this religious nationalism that has no faith in it. But it is very, very aggressive right now. And some of that is also a response to globalization, as we talked about last time. But the point I'm making is that in the postmodern era, we're sort of figuring out where we are right now. And one argument is that science is fantastic for producing new medicines that we've never had, but we've also seen that it's fantastic at producing uh, weapons. Good. And so, so whereas before the view was science had the answer for everything, now the, the increasing view is no, it does not. And, and we have to be cautious about this embrace of science. And so we're, it's this search for values uh, that, uh, that guide lives. And so religion is one place that's looked. And people are starving for, for something like this. They're starving for some sort of religion that is, or religious life that uh, gives, at the very least, meaning. You know? Because what else, what else is rising throughout all this? Uh, officially, atheism grows. So the whole uh, communist revolution, Russian revolution is an atheist revolution, whereas in our society, it would be institutionalized agnosticism, right? American secularism, by not endorsing any religion, is literally institutionalized agnosticism. Okay. And so atheism is, again, on the rise right now. And in our era, and so in the science era, atheism was on the rise, we can argue, because the view is that religion doesn't work. It's made up. Okay. It's irrelevant. Now atheism is, 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 is much more on the rise, I'm suggesting, as a statement of desperation and despair. Okay. So, so this is all. Yeah, go ahead, honey. So can you clarify that? You're saying that this atheism is growing, but then there's search for values which is not religious ba religion based anymore, or is it it's, turning back religion and reforming it? So, so the search for values uh, depends upon the person, but there's a sense of emptiness, a desire for meaning. Okay. And, and so some people are turning to religion for that. Uh, some people are self-medicating whether we're talking about weed, alcohol, Netflix, those are all literally types of self-medicating. Yeah. It's one thing to be doing it just, you know, occasionally to pass the time. It's another thing to be binging, right? And then, and, and, and so, uh, you know, this is, uh, I mean, what is one of the biggest, uh, uh, like the most lucrative sections of what used to be bookstores? Those of you who are younger, we used to have these things called bookstores where you go and they had these things called books. But um, uh, it would be a self-help section, right? And, and so uh, there is this, yeah, I don't, there's this place called Barnes and Noble that has these things called books. So, so uh, I would say globally, there is this sense of emptiness you know, that many people have filled with religious nationalism. And it's literally this irreligious type of religion, you know, where it's not Iman, for example, is not your, your center it's literally force and strength. And so simple examples of that is when Khabib beats Conor McGregor, I think I talked about this last week, a lot of people will see this as a big victory for Islam, you know, kind of ignoring the fact that the UFC is a corporation and Khabib is essentially an employee of a corporation. And, or if you look at all the stuff that, that uh, Erdogan is doing in Turkey, I mean, he's a master of propaganda, right? And so, 
reclaims the Hagia Sophia and you know has a whole Ottoman style semin uh, um, uh, seminar reclaiming it where the Imam is literally carrying like an Ottoman sword. This is all pomp and it's like anti-symbolism. You know? And he'll speak so much in favor of the Palestinians. Meanwhile, his trade with Israel is just, you know, ultra, ultra um, prosperous. And, and so a lot of this is uh, a surface approach to religion without any substance. Yeah, honey. So can you define that? I, I love the examples and I get it, but I just want a definition for religious nationalism. So essentially I'm saying that it's, you're aligning yourself with this tribe being the people that are your co-religionists and your co-religionists of a specific branch of religion. And, and so, so uh, where I work, you know, we have quite a few uh, Christian evangelists that are leftists, you know, that truly believe that the way of Jesus is peace. And they're more repulsed by this right wing than any of us are, right? Because they're seeing their whole, their whole belief system being completely misused. Uh, we would also put branches of the Salafi movement in this too. Okay. And we'll talk about the Salafis later on. Uh, I think, uh, uh, what's his name? I think uh, Khalil Abdul Fadl actually gets too aggressive in his criticism of the Salafis, but the attraction to the Salafi movement versus what it academically was trying to be. Academically, it was trying to be, you know, removing culture from, from or irrelevant culture from religion and focusing on the Hadith. So in the subcontinent, they're more accurately called Ahl al-Hadith, right? Um, uh, but the attraction to the Salafi movement is also a type of religious nationalism too, right? This is our team. These are our scholars. We're going to listen to whatever they have to say uncritically, you know. So there is some some form of supremacy yes. uh, built in within it. Okay. 100% correct. Yeah. Yeah. And think of a supremacist movement as always being driven by an inferiority complex where you're overcompensating. And if this was Quran class, we would connect that with the story of the devil, right? The devil, um, he, he's arguing, I didn't do sajda because I'm better than him. But his actual real issue is that he's jealous, that Adam is being picked to be the Khalifa, peace be upon him, rather than him. And so it's this inferiority complex and he hides behind arrogance. And so supremacy movement is literally collective arrogance and arrogance itself is an overcompensation for an inferiority complex. And so when religious nationalism connects with weapons, then it's the fuel for genocide. So that's literally Al-Qaeda, right? You know. Okay, <clears throat> and so yeah, and then the last one again is that the type of atheism that's rising right now is more the language of despair uh, as opposed to the, the language that religion um, doesn't work. And so, the rise of atheism, I'm also suggesting, is synonymous with the rise of suicide as well, uh, as two different phenomena illustrating the same thing. Okay, so far so good. The other point uh, that I want to draw attention to is, is when he spoke about the ivory tower. So it's funny because everything that we're doing so far is literally just going through two sentences of the book. So, <clears throat> so when we're speaking about the ivory tower, what do people mean? Like, uh, what is the ivory tower? Anyone? Like super scholarly, academic, mm -hmm. on yeah. the top. 
and you know highfalutin words and disconnected from the on the ground reality okay. and so uh, i'd like you to try to imagine different classes of people in terms of uh islamic work or islamic relevance okay so so you'll have okay so here we have the family okay and Muslims, and we'll have the community and such. And so the community is just this big giant collection of people that you know self-identify as as Muslim and such. Yeah. Among all of these people, the people who are the farthest away would be essentially the madrasa scholar. who is writing books. Okay. And so these are people that are actually writing books and articles and such that have a loose understanding of what's taking place on the ground. Just like the academic scholar is writing whatever discourses they are. Uh, and so they're more in the realm of their ideas and imagination. A little bit closer is the academic scholar of Islam. And they're a little bit closer to what's going on on the ground because a lot of what drove them into the academic study of Islam was their own personal search. But more often than not, they can't really tell you what's going on on the ground. They have their image of what's going on on the ground. They might even have data in terms of their own specific research. Okay. And then closer to that would be the mosque leaders. Okay. And mosque leaders, I'm including both the administrators and the Imam Saab. Who, who's hired. But then, especially in some cases, you have imams that are very active in the community. And they're hearing what's going on because families are visiting them. What would you say is closer than all of those? Think of all the different people. Would it be just you and me? So I would put that in the center. So that'd be the family, the Muslims, the community. So here it would be the therapists, law enforcement, and then certain teachers. Why would you say the imam is not as not on the same level as a teacher or a therapist? So, uh, actually, to be fair, I'm going to say a few imams. Okay. So, in the case of Orland Park, I would put Sheikh Kifa 
at this uh, at this uh, level. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say the same for for the Imam of IFS, Sheikh Nasser. Uh, um, his role is more to recite uh, uh, at the masjid, and his recitation is beautiful, right? And so, this really comes down to how uh, integrated is the Imam in such and such community. More often, the Imam is being hired to the person to be the person who leads prayer, and then winds up also being the person that people are turning to, you know, for help. So. Where do you put social media influencer? Imam? Okay, so so then we have the question of influence. Influencer. So. And and so so in terms of the people who are influencing, uh, let's leave this one blank again. All the way on the outside, I'm putting hobbyists. So these are people that might be conscious and thinking about the Muslim community all the time and such, but at the end of the day, the best that they have to offer is dinner time analysis. In the same way that you know you you go to a dinner party and the dads are giving political analysis, you know I was complaining to a friend of mine who who is active in her own capacity in the community that every single day I'll get these phone calls from uncles, and the first five minutes of the phone call is going to be some Islamic law question, like you know okay what about this issue with wudu, okay something like that, and then the next fifty five minutes is gonna be political analysis about some random place in the world. So yesterday, the day before, someone called me up. With, I don't even remember the FIP question. I don't remember that question. But then for the next 55 minutes, he's giving me an analysis of Armenia and Azerbaijan. Okay. And he's a, he's a physician, a Desi physician out here, right? So I can literally give you the Desi uncle analysis of just about every single political issue in the world because they give it to me over and over again, all right? Why 5G is causing COVID. I mean, I can, I've, I've been given every single meme explained to me with the Desi accent. Okay, so, so these are the hobbyists that are on the outside. So again, what is all this? This is the, these are the influencers. Okay. And then here, okay, uh, those, those are my Desi uncles and cousins, 100%. Yeah, totally, totally, you know. Okay, and then a little bit closer, we do have, I'm gonna call them all preachers. Sorry, my handwriting sideways is horribly bad. Okay, and so this includes, well, this includes uh, uh, primarily social media because that's how they're reaching everybody. So Yasser Qadi, for example, big scholar. Right? Uh, I would put him on the right side, the blue side, probably in that first circle, the closest circle, yeah. just because of the sheer volume of questions that he gets. Yeah. On the left side, he's in the social media realm, yeah. uh, in the sense that it is through his social media postings that people are generating their own opinions and understanding Islam and such, as opposed to him as a teacher. Yeah. And then, and so, so another example is Hamza Yusuf, right? Hamza Yusuf who's getting blasted in social media because of his interactions with power and such. Um, and so that's literally formed a personality of him, uh, which is different than how people looked at him in the year 2000 or the year 2005 and such, right? Social media controls all that. Uh, now here, 
What do you think are the biggest influences at the collective level? Corporations going there? I don't want to be wrong one more time. Uh, yeah, totally. Oh, thank God. <laughs> and here, global policy. I'm suggesting that much of our understanding and consciousness of Islam is primarily formed by corporate interests. The things that we concern ourselves with, somewhere in there are corporations behind the scenes. And then secondarily, global policy. So issues related to, you know, that are influenced in terms of foreign policy, oil, right? Uh, all those types of things influence our Islam more than the actual preachers do. And, and I'm literally saying that much of our focus on Islam, the categories and primary issues that as a community we're focused on are being handed to us. Not like, and I'm not saying there's like some, uh, this, you know, Illuminati meeting or anything like that, you know, like let's figure out how to control the Muslims. No, I'm not saying that there's any of that nonsense. I'm basically saying that, okay, what news stories will get viewers and in terms of Islam, what type of news stories will they get? Okay, it's going to be stories related to violence, stories related to gender. And because of that, those become higher up on, on how we evaluate ourselves. And so, for example, Muslims were terrified of talking about politics uh, in, in most any capacity for the last 20 years, except within the realm of, of American political activism. Okay, and so, so the point I'm making here is that Khaled uh, Abu uh, Fadl is positioning himself saying, I'm not writing as someone who's in the ivory tower. I'm writing as a Muslim. And so I'd like you to look at these different circles on the right side, on the left side, as the, as the different ways uh, that we are connecting to Islam, that's more on the right side, you know, people who know what's going on. And then the left side is the way Islam is being formed for us whether we realize it or not. And, and, and so to bring this back to where we were, so all of that was basically to talk about the first two sentences of this book. <laughs> okay. So we're not gonna be going this slowly, uh, but we're laying out some fundamental points. Uh, any questions about anything at all? Yasin Khatri, you said FRR. I don't know what that means. Questions, thoughts about anything? Oh, for real. Okay. Uh, so then, which? Uh, so are you agreeing with me on the for real or not agreeing? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> no, I'm asking. Uh, yeah, it means for real. Yeah. Any other questions or thoughts? Okay, then inshallah we'll stop right here, and we're going to go through a number of other paragraphs in in this uh, this section. Uh, I do encourage, if you can. Uh, try to try to read uh, what he is saying here. I complained last week that I think he's uh, a lot of times he's very meandering in his style of writing, and and uh, but still he his his book is just profound in terms of the gems that he's sharing and such. So. Okay, then we will stop right here. We will continue next week, inshallah. Hopefully, uh, today has given uh, a good foundation in terms of how to to look at um, uh, how uh, 
ways to look at the world. So Usaid's question, so could you repeat that one sentence? The left side is shaping Islam, right side is. So the left side is sort of shaping how we imagine our Islam. And the right side with, and so in looking at the influences, those that are closest are the things that are influencing the most. The right side would be the people who have the best knowledge of what's going on in Muslim life. And that would be the, the two different circles. Day and time next week, Chicago time, 7.30, Monday. Okay then, if there are no other questions, hopefully I've given you uh, a bunch of uh, things to really reflect upon, inshallah. And we will, uh, we yakum, we'll continue next week. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka, wa natubi ilayk. Um, if you have any other questions or such, feel free to email me at my loyal address is the easiest thing. It's just uh, omuzaffer at luc.edu. And if you can't find it, just Google, you know, Muslim Chapel in Chicago. You'll You're pointing the wrong way. Your name what? is on the other side. Really? <laughs> on my screen, it's on this side. Okay. <laughs> Everything's backwards. Everything in America is backwards. Okay, inshallah. All right, I'll see you all uh, next week. All right, salam alaikum.